morning again. Well, we are going to take a step out of our series in, in Mark's Gospels, which now in retrospect, I realize it's probably not the best Sunday to do that, but, you know, God's sovereign, so uh, we're going we're gonna to do a, a short little six-week series through uh, the book of Joel. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Joel, and while you're doing that, I'm going to give you two reasons why. Uh, the one reason is sometimes it's just nice to switch things up. That's my very deep reason. Here's the second more important reason. The second more important reason is um, as we make our way through, you know, if you've been here for some time, that we, uh, as we preach, we're, we're preaching systematically and exegetically through passages of Scripture uh, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from all different genres of Scripture, historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, literature, gospels, uh, epistles, and even uh, as we dabble as we did last week in, in a little bit of the apocalyptic writings, I, I, I want you to see the astounding unity of God's word. You know what I mean when I say that? In other words, I want you to see that from Genesis to Revelation, God is telling the same story of his salvation. He is telling the same story of, of the salvation that he is working for his people through the life, death, and resurrection of his son for the glory of his name. So we've heard over the past, since we've planted, little breaks here and there, uh, we've heard Mark tell that story through his gospel, uh, and it's my hope this morning that you will hear that same story being told in Joel's prophecy. So if you have your Bible open there, Joel chapter 1, let me get there myself. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Listen to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, in this short time that we have now, we pray that you would 
bless not only the reading of your word, but the proclamation of your word. Uh, I pray that you would nourish these brothers and sisters. Show us again uh, our, our need, our sin, even as we have sung this morning, uh, that we would feel our need of you and that we would see uh, you as our all-sufficient God who has done all that is necessary to reconcile us to yourself through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Uh, cause us to love you more, to trust you more. Uh, cause us to be faithful as we hear your word. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, question. How important are holidays to you? Uh, maybe, maybe you're like me and you tend to think of holidays as sort of just another day. Or maybe you really enjoy going all out to celebrate special days. Um, well, I, I'm here to tell you that wherever you fall on that spectrum, and I think we know where the Pfeiffer Center is on that spectrum, given the room, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's, there's room in the church for you know, all of those different kinds of people. Uh, but there is one day, there is one day that the scriptures explicitly set aside, a, a, a day which the scriptures will require all of us to regard with the highest sense of significance. In fact, to deny the significance of this day is to actually put your soul in jeopardy. What day am I talking about? I'm talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Throughout the scriptures, the, the day of the Lord is a phrase that designates the appearance of God both to judge and to deliver. Uh, it's this day, the, the, the day of the Lord, that functions as the central theme of Joel's prophecy. So all throughout Joel's prophecy, you're going to see this uh, return to the day of the Lord. So you, you see it there, if you have it open uh, in your lap there. Chapter 1, verse 15, he writes, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In chapter 2, 11, we read, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And finally, chapter 3, verse 18, we read, And in that day, that is the day of the Lord, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Now, just to give you sort of the lay of the land, the general landscape of Joel's prophecy, what we're going to see is that day of the Lord sort of unfolding in, is that my, okay. You're going to see that day of the Lord unfolding um, in three different progressions, if you will. Um, Joel wants his hearers, which is Judah, by the way, to interpret these three different events through the lens of this day of the Lord. So first, there is a present day of the Lord characterized by what we read, uh, a plague of locusts coupled with drought. But as we go on, we're going to find Joel warning that really the plague is just a foreshadowing of an impending day of the Lord which will come when the Assyrians invade. But even this is but a pointer to a final and great day of the Lord, a final and great day of the Lord, when 
God will come and judge all evil and finally and fully deliver his people. And so in many ways, Joel is implicitly calling us to the same readiness that Jesus commands us in Mark 13. If you're here last week, you know Mark 13, that command, stay awake. Stay awake. The unity of Scripture, I want you to see the same thing. Joel is implicitly calling us to that same kind of readiness. And a question that sort of permeates Joel's prophecy is this. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Are you prepared for the day of the Lord? That's the question that extends through this book. The day of the Lord is coming, and are you ready for it? Now, as we examine the the first 12 verses in this passage, we learn that the first thing, this is what we want to focus on this morning, the first thing that we need to do in order to prepare for the day of the Lord is to honestly reckon with the reality of sin. If we are going to be ready for the day of the Lord, if we're going to be ready for the day of Yahweh, we must deal honestly and speak plainly about the reality of sin in the world and in our own lives. And Joel helps us to do that in two ways. So briefly with our time, very briefly with our time, uh, two ways in which uh, Joel helps us to do that. First, uh, he shows us what the result of sin is. And secondly, he shows us what our response to sin should be. So what, what, let's first look at what the result of sin is. Uh, if you go back through that passage that we just read, you, you may mention, or you may notice, uh, that there's no real explicit, explicit mention of sin. Uh, but the fact that all the devastation in those 12 verses that's outlined there is the result, the direct result of Judah's sin is easy enough to infer. Uh, first off, as I've already mentioned, the entire theme of the book is the day of the Lord when God comes in judgment. To judge what? Well, of course, to judge sin. Uh, we also know uh, that Joel's original audience would have instinctively understood that this destruction was coming by the hand of God in response, as a righteous response to their sin. And actually what's interesting is, if you look at the, the, the first uh, words there, the, this is the word of the Lord that came to Joel, and then the very first word, the first uh, phrases that you find that are the word of the Lord uh, is this. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Now, those words, hear this and give ear, are obviously meant to convey a sense of urgency at what's being said and the need for everyone to pay careful attention. But what's really interesting is that that phrase, hear this and give ear, has a distinct legal flair to it. So if I were to say this to you, you ready? Hear ye, hear ye. You know from stories and culture that what follows is going to be like a royal proclamation, right? Hear ye, hear ye. Royal proclamation is going to follow. When this construction, hear this and give ear, is used, it's the, 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 the original audience would not have heard that as a royal proclamation, but of a, a legal sentence in a courtroom setting. Hear this and give ear. It would, have, it would have reminded them of a judge on his bench restating the charges to the court and then doling out a sentence for the guilty party. Here's another example from Isaiah 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. You see that same phrase. For the Lord has spoken. 
Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So again, that God is judging sin comes through implicitly as he stands over Judah to sort of read out the sentence. That's what we have here in Joel 1, 1 through 12. But if that weren't enough, we find later on in Joel that what he's ultimately calling them to do is to repent, right? To repent for their sin, to put on sackcloth and gather a solemn assembly. That's verse 13 and 14. Now, there are lots of places in scripture that talk about sin. And a lot of times what we find the scripture saying about sin is, this is what it is. You track with me? Okay, a lot of times the scriptures are saying, this is what sin is. For example, in the passage that I just read in Isaiah 1, you read, he says, um, uh, they have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. In other words, what sin is, is to forsake the Lord, to despise the Lord. But Joel is going to do something a little bit different. Joel actually is going to sort of reverse engineer a doctrine of sin by showing us all the horrors of of sin's effect in the world and in our lives. He, he, in a sense, sort of grabs us by the scruff of the neck and says, see, look, this is what sin does. This is what happens. And he shows us a world filled with devastation and destruction. Sort of like a child that burns down a house when they're playing with matches, and then you go to the kid and say, yep, see, look, this is what happens when you play with fire. That's what Joel's doing, saying, look, Open your eyes. This is what sin does. He paints a picture of absolute destruction and devastation. A land and a society left utterly desolate by plague and drought. And so Joel's message is clear. Okay, remember I, do you remember what we're doing? We're, we're, I'm saying in order to prepare for the day of the Lord, we need to do it sort of an honest reckoning with sin. And here's Joel's first point to us. All sin destroys what sin does. All sin brings destruction. It brings devastation. That's what sin does. And the first thing I want you to see is the magnitude of that destruction. So the word of the Lord begins, uh, has such a thing happened in your days? Or this is verse two. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Right? Joel appeals to the elders to try and recall something that has happened in their history that is worse than this. It's a rhetorical question, and the assumed answer is no. Nothing like this has ever happened. This is the worst thing that has ever happened. And so Joel says, then never let your children forget it. Don't, don't let, this cannot pass out of our memory. It needs to be told from generation to generation to generation. In, in the same way that we look to uh, the devastation of like the Holocaust or the shooting at Columbine or, or 9-11 and we say to ourselves, you know, we can't ever forget that. Never forget. We've, we've got to make sure that our children remember these things. Remember what happened. Joel says to all the inhabitants of Judah, never forget this destruction that was brought about by your sin. So what does actually happen? What actually happens? 
uh, we see God's judgment being poured out in the form of locust swarms. uh, Verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. This progression of destruction that comes by the teeth and by the uh, feeding of these locusts. Now, here's where it's a little challenging for us to really relate with the Bible in some ways, right? I'm I'm imagining not many of you uh, fall asleep with a fear of a locust swarm, you know, passing across uh, New Jersey. Um, They're not a real high on our list of fears, but make no mistake, the threat of a swarm of locusts is uh, a terrifying threat uh, in the ancient world and even today in places uh, in Africa. It is a very real and terrifying threat. Um, uh, A Middle Eastern, 20th century Middle Eastern news correspondent named Daniel DeCruz uh, wrote this uh, after observing and, and, and uh, uh, um, what's the word, covering uh, locust swarms in Africa. He, he wrote this, no one who has ever seen the locust at work accuses the Bible account of hyperbole. In 1926 and 1927, small swarms of African migratory locusts were spotted in an area 50 by 120 miles on the plains of the River Niger before the plague sputtered out 14 years after it began. It affected 5 million square miles of Africa, an area nearly double the size of the United States. Massive. The magnitude of the destruction is absolutely breathtaking. It's it's so great that in verse 6, he compares the locusts to an invading army, powerful and beyond number, number, coming up against it to destroy it. And this army is incredibly efficient. They have teeth like a lion and fangs like a lioness, and so they leave nothing behind. And, and, and by the time they have made their way through, there's, there's absolutely nothing left. In verse 5, the wine is cut off because the vine is laid waste. In verse 7, the fig tree is splintered. Its bark has been stripped off and thrown down, and the branches have been left white. Verse 10, the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. languishes. Verse 11, the wheat and the barley have all perished. Now, wheat, man, this thing is, is this thing? See if that helps. This was loose a little bit. Try that. Okay. Um, wheat, by the way, uh, is, a, is a little bit more of a um, fragile crop. So it was more expensive and the wealthy ate it. So when he says the wheat and the barley, okay, the wheat's gone. The barley, though, the barley is a robust crop. It was, so it was uh, less expensive it was the food of the poor, but even that food is gone. All food is gone. That's the point. The destruction is total. The drought that follows the locust leaves nothing alive. Look at verse 12. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Nothing has been left untouched. Nothing has been left intact. Nothing has been left alive. Brothers and sisters, this is the result of sin. You see what he's saying? 
It's a terrifying picture of what sin does. It, it holds out the promise of abundance, but in the end, it is a snare that only brings destruction. And Joel is calling his audience to look at what has happened as a result of their sin in the world around them and to see it as the inevitable destructive result of sin. It is coming by the hand of God. It is God's judgment, but it is God's judgment for sin. It is the direct result of their sin. Sin. So he says, open your eyes and look what sin does. He paints a portrait of destruction that, meant, that, that is meant to show us the reality of what sin does in the world. But in a sense, you don't really need Joel's portrait, do you? Right? You can look, you have lots and lots of portraits, lots of pictures of what sin does in the world. It, it, just take an honest look at the world around you. In the same way Joel sort of grabs us by the scruff of the neck and says, look at what sin does uh, what I want you to do is take a moment and consider. Look at the, the world around you. There's murder, hate, rape, child pornography, intercontinental ballistic missiles, human trafficking, ethnic violence, starvation, disease, school shootings, domestic abuse, child abandonment, eating disorders, drug addiction, gambling problems. Th that's the world we live in, and it's a world that is filled with corruption and brokenness and death. Why? Why? H how do you account for those things? When you look out into the world, how do you account for those things? The, the secular world, the humanist, the, 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 the one who espouses evolution uh, sees a problem with self-esteem and, and problem with public policy. But we know our problem is so much deeper than that. The problem is sin. The problem is hearts that are in rebellion against God. But we have to be careful because here's where we can go wrong. It's easy for us to acknowledge, acknowledge the devastating effects of sin out there. right? We can see all the problems out there but fail to see uh, the problem in our own hearts. And Jesus, of course, says, uh, you know this from our time going through Mark, Mark 7 from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They are what defile a person. You see, all, all the brokenness out there testifies to the fact that what's ultimately messed up is what's in our hearts. We are the problem. Our hearts in rebellion against God are what is the problem. You see, the, the, the moment that Adam rebelled against God in the garden, sin ravaged us and left nothing untouched. You understand what I'm saying? Sin left nothing untouched. Our minds have been corrupted. Our hearts, our wills, our emotions, our actions. Sin has left us spiritually desolate and dead. You see, the problem isn't primarily out there, but in our own hearts. We are the problem, and our sin is the problem. And you see that the magnitude of sin's effect means that nothing has been left untouched. The sin has impacted every part of us. And throughout Joel's prophecy, he, he details the escalating impact of sin's destruction. Verse 5, you see, the luxuries of wine 
and the gladness it brings are cut off from drunkards and all drinkers of wine. This really isn't a, a criticism of drunkards. I mean, obviously, drunkenness is uh, condemned in the scriptures, but this is really about the fact that the wine is cut off, that luxuries have been cut off. And by the time we get to verse 8, we find that the focus is on the priests who are now unable to make the grain offerings and the drink offerings. And so uh, the, the destruction sin has brought means a break in the covenantal relationship with God. They cannot fulfill their covenantal obligations. So their worship with God has been impacted. All the temple proceedings must stop because there's no food, there's no grain, there's no oil. And then by the time we get to verse 12, we find there's no food. Every tree, every food source has dried up and there is only death. Uh, Brothers and sisters, sin always works destruction and death. Joel paints this portrait of sin's devastating effect on the land, but but Paul shows us sin's devastating effect on our hearts. Uh, You know this cascading indictment against mankind that comes in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The very desolation that is painted in and across the land of Judah is just a, a portrait of the desolation we find in our own hearts because of sin. And don't you see, when I look into my own life, I don't just find wrong action. You know that. You don't, find, you don't just find wrong action. You find wrong motive. You find wrong desire. You find wrong thinking, wrong love. Sin's effect in our lives are, is total uh, this is where so many get the, the Christian teaching of sin wrong, right? You cannot boil down sin to just not following rules. It's not merely that you disobey, but that you are dead. It's not merely that you disobey, but that you are. The disobedience flows out of a deadness of soul. And the world around you is so jacked up because you have billions of people living out of the deadness of of their souls. And so what should our response be to that reality? Now, I, I know our tendency. We, we don't like to be uncomfortable. And when the scriptures hold up to us the mirror of our own sin, we, we want to relieve that discomfort as quickly as, as possible. And so when the preacher asks, you know, now, what do we do with sin? Our reflexes, you know, we trust Jesus, the cross, you know, forgiveness, new birth. Yay, everything's better. And that's, there's a really good, I want you to hear, there's a really good reflex in there that when we see our sin, that we run to the cross. But, but stay here in this passage with me for a moment. How, how does Joel call his hearers to respond to this unprecedented destruction in their day. As you look out at a world filled with the effects of sin and you look into your own life and you see the effects of sin, how is Joel calling us to actually respond to that sin? Uh, Verse five, we read, awake you drunkards and weep and wail. 
all you drinkers of wine. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Verse 11, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers. So what, the, 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 the initial response, at least, that Joel wants from his hearers is that they weep and wail and lament and feel ashamed at the destruction that's come upon them. So listen, let me ask you. I know I've just thrown a lot of Joel information at you. Let me just ask you this question. When is the last time that you wept over your sin? I know people have different emotional capacities, and I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not asking when was the last time water came out of your eyes. Okay, that's a, that's a biological thing. That very well may be the, the, the response for you. What I'm asking, though, is, is deeper than that. When was the last time your heart was gripped by the weight and the sadness and the destruction of your own sin? When was the last time you were grieved over your sin to the core? Joel is calling this people to repentance, but he wisely knows what Paul explicitly says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a godly grief, a godly sorrow over sin that produces repentance. We are deeply affected about so many things, aren't we? Our our bank account dips and our stomach sinks. A story on social media about a sick child breaks our hearts and we feel deeply affected. Our favorite sports team misses the playoffs for crying out loud and we are deeply affected. But, but what about when you are confronted with the reality of your own sin? When, when a brother or sister confronts you with sin or when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, is there sorrow? Is there grief? Is there a reckoning with the offense your sin is to God and the way in which your sin hurts those around you directly and indirectly? Is there a grief over your sin? I fear that in this way we are far too much like the world. When we are confronted with our sin, we maybe we just move about our day in apathy. Not acknowledging it, not confessing it, not seeking to right our wrong. We we just kind of don't care. Or we rationalize. Right? It's not my fault because this happened. You don't know the kind of day I've had or the kind of per- people I've had to deal with. Or we dismiss it. You know, I'm, I'm human after all. Nobody's perfect. Or, or maybe the godliest response we can muster is a low-level irritation with our own sin, but never really taking up the call to actively make war against it. Or worse, what we do is we make a, a law for ourselves. We make a rule for ourselves. Now, I'm never going to do that again. And then we measure our standing with God based on whether or not we've kept that rule. Why, why is that? Joel says you haven't really experienced a godly sorrow for your sin. 
A godly sorrow for sin. Now listen, Joel's not after an artificial sadness because of the effects of our sin. There, There is a worldly grief that is only upset by the consequences of sin, which Paul says only leads to death. But, but here's how I know that's not what Joel's talking about. He says in verse 8, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. That, that is such a piercing statement. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Two components to that statement. The first is this. You understand what he's saying? He's saying the sorrow you should feel over sin is like the sorrow a bride should have. In, in, the, in the ancient world, the... Um, the uh, betrothal process was something in between our engagement and wedding. So she could be uh, considered a wife, though not having fully experienced the union and the consummation of her marriage with her husband. So what's being said here is, be sorrowful like a, a bride who finds out that her groom has died the day before their wedding. That's the kind of sorrow that you're gripping. It's a sorrow that recognizes that these, this is not the way it should be. It's a sorrow that, that, that experiences the tragedy of sin. But the second part of that is this. Anytime that portrait of marriage is used, it's invoking God's covenantal relationship with his people. Right? That is, that is one of the most prevailing Uh, portraits of God's relationship to his people, the picture of marriage. And so what's being said here is if if there isn't real repentance, the the, the kind of sorrow that Joel's after is a kind of sorrow that recognizes that what sin does is it ultimately breaks that relationship between God and his betrothed and his people. He's saying your grief should flow out of the fact that your sin has caused a break in the love relationship you are meant to have with God. And unless you repent, unless something changes, your relationship with God is going to look like this woman's relationship with her dead bridegroom. And that is the real source of godly grief. It's why David prays after he sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's also, by the way, why the priests mourn in the temple. Did you catch that? The priests mourning in the temple. That word mourn has a specific context. You know what the context is? Death. That's when you mourn. You mourn when someone dies. And so the, the priests are mourning in the temple. Why? Because in their inability to fulfill the covenant obligations, <clears throat> they are mourning the death of their covenantal relationship with God. They see an end coming to the covenantal relationship they have with God, and so they mourn. So The destruction has brought about the the destruction of the the vines and, and the oil and the food. The grain offerings are cut off. You hear that language, that language of cut off? You know what happens? That's the same exact language that's used when you hear God cutting his covenants with his people. You know what? There's the blessings of covenantal faithfulness, and you know what the curse of covenantal disobedience is? Cut off. You're cut off. And so here we find the grain cut off, the wine cut off. The insinuation is this ultimately means if there is not repentance, if there isn't godly sorrow, a, a cut, a, a cutting off from God. Your sin alienates you from God and cuts you off from relationship with him. 
brothers and sisters, hear that this morning. I said sin always brings destruction. And foremost, what it does is it destroys the relationship between God and man. Your sin alienates you from God and demands not his love and blessing, but his judgment and wrath. And now you ask, why would Joel bring us here to this place? Why would Joel bring us here to this place of weeping and lament? Why would he bring us so low? Why would he bring us to this awful place of vulnerability and fear? You know, when he, he calls the farmers to be ashamed in verse 11, that, that call to be ashamed has the sense of being exposed. It's not so much that inward sense of embarrassment as much as it is as you are completely exposed exposed and vulnerable. The idea is that God has seen you and he has measured you and he has found you unfit for his kingdom. But it is precisely in being shown the reality of your sin, the weight of your sin, and in being brought low by God that you are prepared to be raised up by his grace. How do you prepare for the day of the Lord? You must be brought low before by his grace he raises you up. Until you are brought low, the grace of God that raises you up will never be sweet. Think of Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed uh, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How shall they be comforted? Sin's destruction is total. We know that God is a God who can raise beauty from ashes, who, who raises the dead to, to life. The whole subtext of Joel is that God has sent his prophet to preach the word so that they will repent, so that they will turn, and so that God will restore them. And centuries after Joel's prophecy, that exa- that's exactly what God does. He, he sends his son into a world of sin By rights, the father could have dispatched his son to bring complete and utter destruction. But he doesn't come to bring destruction, does he? He he comes to bear their destruction in their place. He came to experience the complete devastation of God's judgment for sin as their substitute. He came into the world to destroy, but not to destroy sinners. Jesus came into the world to remove the curse and to destroy sin and death forever by submitting himself to destruction and by taking on his shoulders the full devastation of God's judgment against our rebellion. Right? Joel's prophecy begins with this declaration of God's judgment against our rebellion, but at the cross we see that sentence being carried out against Christ. At the cross, he was laid waste. At the cross, he was stripped bare. He was cut off. He was dried up. He was left totally exposed before the wrath of God. The shame that should have fallen upon us fell upon him. And so through death, God's wrath upon us for sin was fully extinguished so that all who come to him in faith are safe from eternal destruction and joined to him forever. So I I started this sermon saying, I I want you to see the unity of Scripture. The gospel is there on every single page. Sin's curse was great, but his grace is greater. Are are you prepared for the day of the Lord? Joel this morning calls us to weep over your sin. 
Really, brothers and sisters, weep over your sin. Mourn, lament, but then repent and rejoice in the forgiveness, the free forgiveness that was won at the cross by your mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and we thank you for the forgiveness that we do have through the cross. Uh, We pray that you would help us. We are so stunted sometimes when, when it comes to feeling the weight of our sin and we pray that you would help us to feel the weight of our sin. Help us to weep, to mourn, to lament our sin, to see it for what it truly is. Uh, but help us not to say, stay there. Help us to, to repent, to turn to you, knowing that you forgive all who come to you in faith. Lord, comfort these brothers and sisters, nourish them. We thank you for this time and pray your blessing upon the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.